Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Nearly 15,000 U.S. service members in 2016, women and men, reported that they had been sexually assaulted some more than once. That's according to a report in Stars and Stripes. Coming up, we look at whether the military will respond differently to this problem now that there's attention on allegations of sexual harassment and assault across other industries in the civilian world. We'll hear from a Connecticut veteran about her experience after she reported that she was sexually assaulted. We'll also talk with a retired military prosecutor who's now head of a national advocacy group, Protect Our Defenders. Its goal is to reduce assault and harassment in the military, and it pushes for reform in the military justice system. We'll also get an update on where the state budget deficit stands. Yep, that biennial budget the General Assembly passed four months late isn't in balance. Editor-in-chief of ctnewsjunkie.com, Christine Stewart, will break it down for us and explain why lawmakers are planning to meet for a special session after Christmas. That conversation later. First, did you get your flu shot? Do you get it every year or do you choose to avoid it? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me in studio is Dr. Ulysses Wu, Chief of Infectious Diseases at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford. Dr. Wu, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. So every fall, winter, we think of the flu as a seasonal annoyance. Uh, some of us may get it and recover. It's also serious, depending on your age. Uh, do people take it seriously from your perspective as a doctor? I think people. some people do take it seriously, but uh, they take the, the, the worry of actually getting the vaccine more serious than the actual illness itself, whether it be the time, whether it be the cost, whether it be the actual needle itself, as opposed to... And, and the unfounded fear is that you can get the flu from the flu vaccine, which is totally untrue. They're more worried about that than uh, the actual influenza itself. And what I've actually heard from people who have actually survived influenza, they said, I will never not get the vaccine again. I haven't had the flu in many years, knock on wood. R- remind us what the symptoms are when you get the flu. Sure, absolutely. Uh, it can actually range anywhere from asymptomatic to death being the extremes. And certainly we wouldn't want the latter. But uh, there are influenza-like illnesses. You just, everybody says, I have the flu. And you feel cruddy, sore throat, maybe some congestion. But it can actually go to other parts of the body, especially your lungs. So you can develop a really bad respiratory illness, uh, such as a pneumonia. And it can actually end up in other parts, the heart, the the brain, and other things like that. And on top of that, if you get pneumonia, you can actually get a bacterial super infection on top of that. So you can actually get two illnesses at the same time because it seems to put you at risk for some of these other pneumonias. Are we technically in flu season? We are definitely in flu season. It is considered widespread in the state, and it is definitely, it's really hitting the southern states a lot worse, um, but I suspect we will get ours. Part of the reason we wanted to do this segment with you, Dr. Wu, is there have been uh, several media reports that this year's flu vaccine may only be 10% effective. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk a little bit about that, uh, this report, and how do they know? So that's actually based off of the data coming from Australia. So there's different uh, hemispheres, obviously, in the world, and so their flu 
seasons are very different from ours. And so we're looking at the flu vaccine that uh, that was given Australia and the flu strains that were widely circulating in Australia as well. Now, 10% seems to be the, I, I'm, I'm going to say, the number that everybody's focusing on. The actual vaccine effectiveness was overall was actually about 33%. But the predominant uh, circulating strain was something called H3N2. And there was only a 10% effectiveness they found in Australia, only Australia, they, uh, other other places are not actually reporting back just yet, but in Australia where uh, 10% was f- uh, effective against the H3N2, which comprised 55% of the circulating strains, not all of them. Earlier you said that there's a, a misconception that if you get the flu shot, you can also get the flu. So tell us how the vaccine actually works. So what it does is it actually stimulates your antibody your or your immune system. And what happens is that uh, you, most of the side effects that you get from the flu shot is actually a localized reaction. Probably up to 65% will get some local soreness. But some people just don't feel maybe up to snuff, maybe a little cruddy. But I, I attribute that to actually your building antibodies. And so what happens is that this antigen in these in, in the flu, it's not the flu itself. It is not a live vaccine. Uh, there are live flu vaccines, but they're not actually re- recommended. But what happens is when you get the shot, you start, developing, you start developing antibodies to these antigens that are in these vaccines. So if the strain fluctuates so often and it can impact effectiveness each year, uh, why should people get it if it's only 33% effective? Because uh, so the analogy I use is actually like seatbelts. And so seatbelts uh, in minor accidents and even in major accidents will help prevent uh, actual morbidity and mortality. But no vaccine is 100%. There are some that actually approach 100%. But due to the nature of the virus itself or influenza, and since it tends to change from year to year, its uh, vaccine effectiveness is not as effective. Nonetheless, it does provide some protection. And again, the gains to getting, uh, we talk about it in terms of pros and cons. There are very little cons to not getting the flu vaccine. And there's a lot of pros because Again, uh, a lot of people can die. Uh, we look back to 1918 with the Spanish influenza. You know, 50 million people died worldwide. And up to even the U.S. since then, maybe even up to 48,000 can die per year. This is where we live today. We're talking about the flu shot with Dr. Ulysses Wu, chief of infectious diseases at St. Francis Hospital. Now, do you get the flu shot each year? We want to hear from you, uh, even if you don't, about uh, those reasons why as we talk about whether uh, the flu shot this year is effective. Uh, Just looking at preliminary information uh, from Australia, as we just heard Dr. Wu say about the effectiveness. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Bill is calling from Madison. Uh, Bill, go ahead with your question or comment? Hi. Um, I, although, um, ironically, I've, I used to work uh, work in the same building with Paul Offit, and I've met Anthony Fauci in person. I pretty much avoid this shot because it has such a low effectiveness, whereas I'm very big on all the other vaccines. I think it's very important. What I don't understand, and I think I half got it from what you just said, is why uh, why other vaccines like rubella or something are held to such a high standard they've got to be really effective or you don't they won't be released whereas the flu vaccine even if it's 10 percent effective it's fine and i think you basically just explained it um maybe just confirmation essentially you're saying there's no danger with the fluids vaccine but there's a lot of downside to not taking it absolutely 
Yep. Oops, sorry. You can keep going. Anything? <laughs> uh, there, there's nothing is ever 100%. So I, I don't want to ab- absolutely say that there is no danger. We have seen very rare cases of very unusual reactions to the influenza vaccine. But overall, the morbidity and mortality that is prevented with the flu vaccine is the benefit is much greater. Uh, and there's actually even thought that those who receive the flu vaccine, even if you are exposed to influenza, it may temporize the de- disease to a certain certain extent. So I'm not going to say that there's no danger in medicine. We never say that. Um, but there, there is very little risk. Yes. Now, Bill, before I let you go, have you gotten the flu before? And how did you react? Did you then the pre- next year get the flu shot? Well, yes. Yeah. So as an adult, I had it in maybe 2005 or so. Um, and uh, it was miserable. And, you know, most people think stomach bug, but that's not the flu. The flu mm-hmm. is you literally can't move. You are just you are just wrecked and you're out of work for more than the two weeks you get, you know, you're, you're just flattened. Um, and because of that, I actually went to the clinic in Centerbrook for maybe two years after that. And I got the flu shot, but then of course I stopped. So, (laughs) Here we are. All right, Bella, thank you for your call and question. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. So just to reiterate, Dr. Wu, when we were talking about, you know, again, why there are um, the vaccines for certain uh, illnesses and diseases are is is more effective than the flu because the strain is constantly changing? Yes, this is, there are certain viruses that like to mutate. And this is something due to the, they call it um, the particles on, on, on the, that surround the influenza itself, they like to change from year to year. So it's always a moving target, whereas there are more stable viruses such as the measles or the mumps that really don't change, and that's why the vaccine is certainly more effective. Uh, Craig is calling from Old Line. Craig, go ahead. Oh, doesn't look like, oh, Craig, are you there? Oh, so uh, if Craig wants to call back, uh, 860-275-7266. It's interesting when we're talking about uh, the decisions that people, they think about whether or not they should get the the flu shot. Uh, When we talk about other vaccines, sometimes people rely on what's called herd immunity. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about what that is? And is that smart? Uh, herd immunity is it's so basically there are two themes in medicine. It is the 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 protection of the individual uh, as the individual themselves, and then you look at concepts where is protection at the society as a whole. And herd immunity really focuses on that second concept because there are people who cannot get the influenza vaccine, or there are barriers to care where people should get the influenza vaccine but they don't get them. So herd immunity, to a certain extent, will allow people to prevent themselves from getting the influenza vaccine, or I mean, it's not, not the influenza vaccine, but influenza themselves, which does not then allow, which allows them to protect them from passing them on to others. And in healthcare, we actually see this. We have mandatory influenza vaccine for all healthcare practitioners at our institution and most institutions. When we look at getting the flu shot each fall, um, what populations definitely need it? Absolutely. So I'm going to say everybody, but there are populations, certainly. When we look at greater than ages of 65, uh, they're on, under uh, six months, actually, that you cannot get the influenza vaccine if you're under six months old. But we look at the elderly, uh, cardiac patients, pulmonary patients, people with lung diseases, people with heart diseases, sorry, diabetes, people who live in chronic care facilities, pregnant patients for sure, uh, and then people with kidney diseases amongst other. Um, I was. I received a comment that um, sometimes there are questions about whether pregnant women should get the flu vaccine in the first trimester. 
So I, I am not a pregnancy vaccine expert, but uh, it is recommended overall that pregnant patients should certainly get it, and actually two weeks postpartum, even after. Uh, even after. Craig, I think he called back from Old Lyme. Craig, go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, uh, I'm a physician in the London area, and I think you may have already just made the comment that uh, I wanted to try to emphasize is the, the concept of herd immunity. And that if you say that something is a third effective, yet we cut down the number of individuals that are infected by a third, then that's just that many fewer people to spread the, the illness. And I think that's something that will not resonate too well with people uh, because people usually do things for their own benefit. But I think that's a point we've always wanted to drive home to, especially younger folks, to help protect the older ones uh, from from them being infected by a younger person who isn't quite infected by the disease. But I, I think the biggest hurdle we run in our office every day is that people still have the misconception that the flu virus is the same one they're getting in the vaccine, and they, they will get sick. And I, quote, got it last year when I got the flu virus. And I said, well, I mean, when I got the flu shot. And I try to emphasize to them, we're immunizing you during flu season. You came into my office with it, most likely, and then got your flu vaccine, which was too late. You need to come earlier. So I think the two points I would like to drive home is, one, you tried so well to do it. You cannot get the flu from the vaccine. And two, you've got to get it soon enough so that you're not getting uh, vaccinated during the flu season. Well, thank you, Craig, for, for your call. Um, I just Before we had to break Dr. Wu, um, he just made a good point. So we are in the midst of flu season. Is it too late for someone to get the flu shot now? It's not too late, and we actually re- recommend getting the influenza, influenza vaccine throughout the season, even up through April, uh, because influenza B viruses certainly circulate at that time. And he does bring up a good point. It does take a couple weeks for the vaccine to take hold. So a lot of these people actually get the flu while they got their vaccine a little bit too late. And uh, it's very common for someone to get a flu shot, but there's also Tamiflu, there's flu block. Can we walk us through the specifics and wh- how they're different? So there are multiple vaccines. And so there's uh, it, it, like there's major differences. Some of them are how they are developed. Some of them are high dose. Some of them only con- uh, contain three flu strains. Some contain four flu strains. Some are needless. And so there are various ones that you can certainly use. The only one that they're rec- not recommending is the live attenuated one, the one that you actually spray through your nose. That is not recommended for for this season. And how close are we to getting a flu vaccine that tackles all these different strains so people don't have to keep getting it? So there's, there is some promise, and they're looking at different ways to target the influenza itself. The thing is that these little particles, some of them which they call lollipop particles, they change their flavor every single year. And so that target is very difficult to to achieve. It's, it's a moving target, and we're also guessing what the strain is six months, six to seven months ahead of time. Well, I want to thank Dr. Ulysses Wu, Chief of Infectious Diseases at St. Francis Hospital. Uh, So your words of advice, get the flu shot. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you again for coming in. Thank you. Coming up, the Connecticut budget is still in the news. That's because the current year has a more than $200 million deficit. Now the General Assembly is expected to meet for a special session after Christmas. Does that mean they'll tackle how to plug this latest deficit? Not likely. Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief of ctnewsjunkie.com, will join us right after the break to explain. And we'll take your questions, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut's budget continues to make news. That's because the current budget year that ends June 30th is $208 million out of balance. Late last week, lawmakers announced they'd be meeting in a special session after Christmas, but it won't likely focus on the deficit. Christine Stewart joins me now in studio to explain. She's editor-in-chief at ctnewsjunkie.com. Christine, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So why are they meeting in special session? So they're <laughs> going to meet in special session to actually restore funding to the budget that they had cut. So they're going to put about $54 million back to restore the cuts in eligibility they made to something called the Medicare Savings Program, which is kind of a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Um, because basically the program is um, a, it's the state's contribution in Medicaid dollars to um, the elderly and disabled who qualify for for Medicare, and it helps them pay their Part B um, premiums and, and co-payments. Um, so basically these are very poor and elderly people, and they cut the eligibility in half to what the federal minimum was. This was something that I understand was in Governor Malloy's original budget way back in February, and both lawmakers on both sides approved it in this latest budget that was passed in October. Now they're having a change of heart? Yes, so they are suddenly having a change of heart. So they were kind of, they were aware of this, that this was in there, and I think that all of the other issues were just too big for them to tackle, and they finally came to some sort of agreement on something and and you know adding this additional thing to it um, was not going to get them to a deal at the end of October so they you know put it off and then all of a sudden the phone call started happening when 113,000 people you know are were losing some some sort of benefit and uh, all of a sudden they want to come back in session mm. so there's also some uh, political wrangling going around on about how this special session was called. How does it normally get called and what happened? So normally um, the governor calls the legislature back in a special session. Um, so this time the governor was like, you know, look, you guys passed this budget. You're not going to deal with the deficit and you want to add money back to it. Why would I call you back in a special session for that? So they had to do this petitioning process in which a majority of the House and a majority of the Senate um, had to sign a petition to say we want to call ourselves back in a special session. So the window that they have for the special session now that they've submitted their petitions to the Secretary of State's office is between December 24th, Christmas Eve, and December 29th. Um, so I, I don't think anything's going to happen on the 24th or the 25th because it's Christmas and Christmas Eve. So that kind of leaves them the 26th through the 29th to come back and, and do this. This petition process, is that unusual? It is unusual. They haven't done that very, very often. And it's, you know, there's some arcane language that only can be within 10 days and 15 days or something. It, it, it um, doesn't happen very often. This is where we live. I'm talking with Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief at ctnewsjunkie.com. We're talking about the Connecticut budget. Uh, Again, in the current year, there's now more than $200 million deficit. Uh, And lawmakers are going to be meeting in special session after Christmas just to deal with one specific program, this Medicare savings program. It's $54 million, uh, Christine, that they want to restore. So what's going to get cut? Yeah. So apparently there's some sort of secret agreement on what's going to get cut um, following their preliminary meetings, but they haven't said exactly where where they're going to find that money in, in the budget. But they've come to some sort of agreement. And the governor's like, hey, 
you want to tell me where you're going to find these savings because I need to know if they're actually real. Um, so a lot of that's probably going to get worked out this week. Um, lawmakers are supposed to be meeting and, and discussing that. Remind us again why, with a budget that was just passed in October, there's now a more than $200 million deficit that needs to be plugged. What caused that? Right. Um, so, yeah, that that's a tricky one. So it's actually not the revenue side right now that is causing the deficit to have to be plugged. Um, it's more on the spending side. Um, the expectations of what was going to be spent were were off. Um, they were wrong about, you know, how much money is going back to pay state employees for Roland's um, firings back in 2002. Um, so it's it's been a combination of a bunch of things. And we'll, we'll see revenue figures, updated revenue figures, probably in January. And they're probably not going to be looking very good. So this budget is not going to be balanced for a very long time. What's happening uh, at the Capitol? It seems you've been covering this for years. It seems this year partisanship is especially strong, even if they throw out the word bipartisan agreement. I'm just curious uh, what's happening behind the scenes, Christy. Well, you know... (sighs) I think that I think Senator Looney may have said it best the other day when he was talking at this this Medicare rally. Um, he was like, "Look, there are all these things we would like to do with the budget. There are you know specific things that we would like to spend money on, um, but we can't do that because we have to work in this bipartisan. We have to work in this bipartisan manner. So I think it's it's more or less the numbers um, in the House and the Senate and the you know very close margins that are dictating." how they operate this year, which is is very different than they've operated in other years. And elections coming next year. And elections are coming next year. And we have a special transportation fund that is about to go. Yeah, that (laughs) is broke. And uh, I think we may see a special session in January on tolls. Uh, Now, we were talking about the Medicare savings program. So if they meet after Christmas, they restore this $54 million to help um, these uh, elderly that are having trouble paying Mm -hmm. for their uh, co-pays and and premiums. That's only till June 30th. That is only till June 30th. So this is only $54 million for another six months because it's the fiscal year starts on, on July 1st. And even though they didn't have a budget on July 1st, um, that's still when the the clock starts ticking for the spending in these programs. So, uh, you know, I I don't know what the solution is in in the future, and I'm not sure that they do. <laughs> and they adjourn this year in May because it's an election year, so they all want to get to their campaigns. So it should be really interesting to see how they resolve some of this. You mentioned earlier, Christine, that Governor Malloy he wasn't going to call a special session if they weren't going to tackle the big problem, not just not this one program. What are some of the proposals that the the governor has to to deal with this deficit? Yeah, so last week he put out this um, two weeks early. Uh, he put out this menu of both tax increases and spending cuts, and so uh, about 189 million in tax increases and. 113 million in spending cuts. And the spending cuts really would impact the social safety net. And the tax increases are things that we've seen before, uh, increase in the sales tax, increase in the cigarette tax, increase in hotel taxes and stuff like that. That's not popular. It is not popular, but um, the cuts to the social safety safety net are also not popular. Um, So it's really going to be tough for these lawmakers to find a happy happy medium here. There seems to be no easy answer. No, there is no easy answer. There are no more um, silver bullets anymore, you know, to any of the state's problems. So good luck to the 37 candidates running for governor. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, we know uh, Minority Leader uh, Themis Clairdis, well, she was 
has been named possibly as being interested. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, no, she has been um, a a person of interest, a person we are watching. Um, I think as as time draws near, I, I think that if she wants to use public financing, her opportunity to do that and qualify before the convention in May begins to get less and less and less. Um, so there really are no no front runners in the in the race right now. So it should be interesting to see what happens. Do you know of any other lawmakers interested? Um, and now, you know, I, I think that New Britain Mayor Aaron Stewart has expressed some interest in it. And, you know, I, you know, lawmakers interested. Um, I know that Oz Griebel, the, the former... Um, former head of Metro yeah, Hartford Alliance. Yeah, is uh, probably going to get into the race this week as an independent. So that should be interesting. Governor Malloy, everyone calls him a lame duck. What is his relationship now with the legislature? You know, so I think that they have an adversarial relationship at the moment. Um, you know, even within the Democratic Party, it's an adversarial relationship with the governor. Uh, but I think that he's really fighting hard. I think we saw him front in front of his um, the commission on fiscal, um, I guess, accountability and competitiveness. Uh, this council is supposed to of like these former business execs who's supposed to come up with a plan by March first for the state. Um, kind of trying to preserve his legacy and, and trying to preserve um, the the strides that he has made um, in the state and shoring up, um, not necessarily shoring up, but at least stopping the bleeding in the pension funds and, you know, renegotiating to labor contracts and and trying to be responsible and taking a half percent of the sales tax and putting it towards transportation improvements. So looking at the the deficits going forward, uh, the legislature can really only cut from social services, possibly higher education spending as well? They, um, as part of Malloy's deficit mitigation, he didn't propose any cuts to higher ed, which was kind of interesting. Um, so, But that is one of the places that, that they can look to be making cuts. Christine Stewart is editor-in-chief of ctnewsjunkie.com. I think we got it all uh, moving into the new year. People, uh, people aren't optimistic, though. No, I don't think that people are optimistic. I don't know uh, that this is going to you know, solve our problems here. Um, I don't, I, there is no silver bullet anymore. There's no one easy answer. And the budget picture is more complicated than it's ever been. Any chance a special session, uh, despite them saying they're only going to focus on the Medicare savings program, that they could look at this this other, this big deficit ahead? They could look at the big deficit, and I think it might be smart to rip the Band-Aid off and, and, and deal with it before the new year. Well, I want to thank you again for uh, your update, Christine. It is uh, confusing and complicated, but we look forward to seeing what happens uh, after January 1. Thank you. Christine Stewart again, editor-in-chief of ctnewsjunkie.com. Coming up next on Where We Live, allegations of sexual harassment and assault continue across industries in the civilian world. How's the problem being addressed in the U.S. military? President of the national group Protect Our Defenders will join us after the break to talk about why his group and others are suing the Department of Defense. A Connecticut veteran will also join us with her story about what happened when she reported an assault to her former commander. Are you a current or former service member? What changes would you like to see in how the U.S. military justice system handles harassment and assault. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, email where we live at wmpr.org, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, roughly one in 68 American children has been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. That's according to the federal CDC. Yet for some, this diagnosis comes later on in life in the midst of successful careers and marriages. On the next Where We Live, we'll meet two women who were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder as adults. How has autism shaped their lives? We'll hear their stories, and we want to hear from you, too. You can join the conversation. That's tomorrow on Where We Live. Right now, the U.S. Department of Defense says there were 6,172 reports of sexual assault last year. Those are reported instances, but the DOD estimates in 2016 that there were nearly 15,000 service members who were assaulted. Those numbers come from surveys within each branch of the military. Is the U.S. military doing a better job responding to sexual assaults and harassment? Last week, National Advocacy Group Protect Our Defenders joined with the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center to sue the DOD and the Department of Homeland Security, they want the agencies to release its records on sexual harassment and assault. Joining the conversation now by phone is retired Colonel Don Christensen, a former chief prosecutor of the Air Force and president of this group, Protect Our Defenders. Uh, Colonel Christensen, welcome to the show. Why, thank you. Thank you for having me on this morning. Also, in studio with me is Leslie. Uh, She's a Connecticut veteran. Uh, She served in the U.S. Marine Corps. She's also a sexual assault survivor, and Leslie has asked us not to use her last name to protect her privacy. But we welcome you also, Leslie, to the show. Hi, thank you very much. Before we find out from Colonel Christensen about uh, the work of Protect Our Defenders, I wanted to learn a little bit about your story. Leslie, can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to join the Marine Corps? Well, um, I was born here in Hartford, uh, raised in Waterbury, uh, to a low-income family, and uh, just due to my surroundings and whatnot, I wanted to see what else was out there. I gave a chance to community college, and I just wanted to be part of something bigger than myself, so after trying to go to community college, I went forward to the United States Marine Corps in February of 2010. What was that like to join the Marines? Um, it's a little scary being a female, being a minority. A lot of people don't think you're going to make it. So the odds are against you in a male-dominated organization. But, you know, I'm one of those people that you say, I can't do it. I try to go and do it anyways. But it was a very interesting and challenging experience. How many years did you serve? I served five and a half years before being medically retired. Uh, We're talking about sexual assault and harassment in the military. This is something that you experienced, uh, multiple incidents of sexual assault. When this happened, uh, walk us through the process. Did you feel comfortable reporting this to your commanders, and what happened? Well, at first, um, when the first sexual assault happened, what happened was, you know, I was very young, and I thought that, you know, I had put myself into the situation, so on and so forth. So there was some time that had passed, um, and I had been sexually assaulted multiple times. So when I went forward to someone who is designated for that, a uniformed victim advocate, um, there's nobody really likes scandal. So they sort of geared me towards it was more sexual harassment. And so as I went forward and I thought, okay, this doesn't seem like sexual harassment. It seems like sexual assault. Um, I went forward to my upper chain of command And they told me, you know, I don't think it would be in your best interest to come forward and say this. I think it would work negatively against you. You could get charged for this and that. And so it deterred me from reporting it. And so later on, um, when I told my story to someone who is designated, which is sexual assault response coordinator, they told me, no, this is definitely, you know, sexual assault. 
And so then a investigation was conducted. And like I like to say, sometimes the aftermath of the sexual assault is so much worse than the actual moment. What do you mean? So, you know, the sexual assault, it has a beginning and an end. And of course, it follows you for the rest of your life and the side effects of it. But the response from people within the military, you become ostracized, um, people treat you differently. There's a stigma that follows you no matter where you go. And um, people just look at you at a different way. You don't get that much support. And at the time when I had reported the um, the sexual assault, there weren't that many programs where I was stationed. The only thing that they provided was a therapist. So that was, it was very hard and I had to go and reach out for help. Do you feel like there was retaliation for reporting this to your commanders? Well, <laughs> they don't want to see it as retaliation, but I did get into some trouble um, I felt that I was targeted a lot of the times. If there was some like lowly work to be given to, it was given to me. If there were extra shifts that need to be done, they were given to me. And so it was just, it was difficult. And even when I went to my next duty station, they tried to label me uh, to my next chain of command. And it made it very difficult because even when I went to the next duty station, there was still that stigma that followed me. Uh, you said that you served five years in the, the U.S. Marine Corps? About five and a half years, yes. So till about 2015? Yes, 2015. I got out in about June. Did you see during this time, because you mentioned uh, specific uh, positions that you reported this to, uh, but you said really there wasn't any support other than a therapist. Did you see a change happening at all within uh, the Marine Corps as more attention on Capitol Hill to sexual assault in the military uh, became uh, more common where there, people were talking about it, at least uh, in the civilian side? But I'm, I'm curious what you noticed in, in the Marine Corps. Well, the thing is, once I left my first duty station to my second duty station, obviously there were more programs because it was stateside. And um, there was, a, that's when it started slowly getting into the media attention. And I believe that they allowed me to retire medically due to the fact that it was such a big topic out there. It influenced their decision to say, okay, let's medically retire her instead of just, you know, kicking her out for this or that. This is where we live. Today we're talking about sexual assault and harassment in the U.S. military. In studio with me is Leslie, a Connecticut veteran. She served in the U.S. Marine Corps for five and a half years. She's also a sexual assault survivor. Uh, we're not using her last name. Uh, I wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, retired Colonel Don Christensen, again, a former chief prosecutor of the Air Force and president now of Protect Our Defenders. Uh, Colonel Christensen, you're able to hear a bit of Leslie's story. Um, you prosecuted military sexual assault cases for years. I'm curious, from Leslie's accounts, is this something that sounded familiar to you? Yes, yeah, sadly. Uh, it's, it's a textbook answer to almost the experience of every survivor ever dealt with, and the survivors we're still dealing with that protect our defenders. Uh, it's uh, the retaliation. Uh, the DOD's own numbers show that every year over 60% of the women who report sexual assault are retaliated against. In the words she used, I felt targeted. I felt like they were uh, trying to get me. We hear that over and over, and it, it, it disincentivizes people from coming forward. It makes it very difficult to get justice in their case because they start to feel 
feel like they can't trust anybody. And so retaliation is just a huge, uh, huge problem and a huge uh, barrier to getting justice. Can you, uh, I know the military criminal justice system is complex. It's different from what we may be used to in uh, on the civilian side. But when something like this happens, a sexual assault, and it's reported, who is in charge of, of deciding if this goes to a military trial? Yeah, the military justice is unique in the sense that rather than a prosecutor making the prosecution decision as it would happen in Connecticut or any other place in this country, uh, it's that decision is made by a commander. And that commander uh, might be a fighter pilot, might be an infantry officer, uh, but they're not lawyers, they're not prosecutors, and they have very little experience with sexual assault. The, you know, the words that Leslie said were, uh, her chain of command said, uh, I don't think it's in your best interest to do that. Uh, that's, again, these are commanders who don't know what they're doing. And so they, they say things like that, and they shut down sexual assaults. I mentioned that you're a former chief prosecutor in the U.S. Air Force. So if there was a sexual assault uh, report, um, you, a prosecutor is not the one that decides if, if it goes to a military trial. You said it's the commander that does. Right, yeah. So even though I was the chief prosecutor of the Air Force uh, and, and had the ability to try a case uh, anywhere in the world, I could only try it if the commander said, I'm going to send it to trial. I had no authority to make a case go to trial. I had no authority to make sure that justice was done. And it's not a jury that hears uh, these allegations. It's a panel chosen by the commander. Absolutely, yeah. It's so... Uh, for perception-wise, one of the biggest weaknesses of military justice process is the same person making the decision whether a case goes to trial also selects the people who would sit in judgment of, of the charges. Uh, now, I mentioned that you're retired. Uh, why did you decide to join Protect Our Defenders, and how is this group working to combat uh, sexual assault in the military? Well, I decided to retire because I, I had served 23 years and almost all of that, and in the military justice world as a defense counsel, as a prosecutor, and as a judge. And over those 23 years, I had seen how the system was failing, uh, people like Leslie and the people uh, looking for justice. And I'd seen too often that uh, when a victim came forward that uh, she was the one that was under investigation versus the person who, who had sexually assaulted her or raped her. And uh, seeing that the failure of the command-controlled system could not be changed from the inside, I came to protect our defenders to uh, work for reform from the outside. And what kind of reform uh, have you seen in recent years? I asked uh, Leslie while she was in the Marine Corps uh, up and through 2015. Uh, you know, the last couple of years, there's been more attention uh, in the U.S. Senate, thanks to Senator Gillibrand, uh, to military, what they call military sexual trauma, or MST. Uh, what changes have been made in recent years? Yeah, thanks to people like Leslie speaking out, uh, media coverage like yourself, and the efforts of uh, strong leaders in Congress like Senator Gillibrand and Congresswoman Jackie Speer, uh, we have been able to uh, slowly start reforming the process. And so one of the things we've been focusing on is protections of victims as they go through the process. So prior to uh, recent legislation, a victim's mental health records routinely turned over to her, to her assailant. Uh, in most states, those would never, ever be released to anybody, but... Uh, it was just a matter of routine, turn those over. So that, uh, we have slowed that process down. Uh, we have 
reformed the the uh, pretrial hearing process that uh, in the past was basically had all the rules of a knife fight and victims were subjected to hours upon hours of, of uh, very abusive cross-examination without any protection of a judge, without any protection of uh, military rules of evidence, uh, and realistically designed just to intimidate a victim out of going forward to the trial. And, and that's been reformed, and now a victim has an option not to testify at those hearings, and if they chose to, they would have greater protections. Uh, just uh, one of the biggest reforms is Again, Leslie talked about how she had nobody there. Now uh, Congress has mandated and the Department of Defense has implemented a requirement that every military victim be provided a free legal counsel to help uh, them advocate for themselves and help them uh, navigate them through this very complex military justice world. And, and I think that one is the biggest change so far, knowing the for a victim to know they have somebody there who can fight for them. This is where we live. We're talking about how the U.S. military responds to sexual harassment and assault within its ranks. On the phone with me, retired Colonel Don Christensen. He's a former chief prosecutor in the U.S. Air Force, now president of Protect Our Defenders. And in studio with me is a Connecticut veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. Her name is Leslie. She's a sexual assault survivor, and we're not using her last name. I wanted to ask you, Leslie, what happened to um, the, the people that um, assaulted you? Well, um, what happened was I was in a different duty station and this person was pending investigation. And in the long run, the individual, um, because there wasn't sufficient evidence, because time had passed by, the individual was simply just discharged from the military. Um, With some of the other cases, because all of this was happening at the same time, and I was more concerned for my well-being. And like he was saying, the constant like scrutiny and, and, and the questions being asked, and it consumed so much of my time and my work, I had decided to drop the charges because there really was no support. And the system that they told us to trust in truly failed me with the first sexual assault that I just decided to step aside and take care of myself and the aftermath of the sexual assault. Colonel Christensen, earlier I mentioned there were more than 6,000 reported uh, incidents of sexual assault uh, to uh, the Department of Defense, but how many of those actually go to trial? Yeah, it's shockingly light how many go to trial. So uh, in 2016, the most recent data we have, there were 389 cases that actually went to trial out of those 6,000 reports. And of those 389 cases that went to trial, only 124 people were convicted of a sexual assault. So if you go back to the to what you said earlier about having about 15,000 uh, victims of sexual assault each year in the military, and that's just the military people, doesn't count. Civilians are also sexually assaulted by military people. Only 124 of those resulted in a conviction, and and you cannot uh, stop this this scourge if if you know less than one percent of the time you are able to get a conviction. Uh, we were talking about this today in the context of, of the Me Too movement in the last uh, several weeks. Uh, again, there has been some increasing pressure on the U.S. military to respond to these um, these cases of assault and harassment. Uh, but do you feel like what's happening in the civilian world uh, will trickle down? Will there be more pressure on the military, Don? 
I I absolutely do. I I think uh, the Me Too movement is one of those cultural shifts that come along uh, once in a lifetime, sort of like the 64 Civil Rights Movement. And I I think uh, that is going to carry over. I think the military is going to see that they can't just kick the can down the road as they have in the past and hope media coverage goes away. Uh, I, I really believe the nation's in a different spot than it was before the Me Too movement started. And I think the military is going to have to follow up. Mm. Leslie, what do you think about this Me Too movement? Will it impact the U.S. military? I believe that it will impact the U.S. military. Um, Obviously, this is something that's been going on for a very long time. And in my own personal experience, I've met uh, women veterans that have been dealing with this Vietnam era, so on and so forth, and they're still affected by these things. And now to see it so publicized, I think it will um, have an influence on how the military goes about um, addressing sexual assault victims and their policies. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, I had mentioned that Protect Our Defenders, along with the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center, uh, just filed a lawsuit against the DOD and the Department of Homeland Security uh, last week related to military sexual trauma. Don, what are you looking for specifically? Well, what we're looking for is to to really dig into the data that, that we know is out there to see if the military really is addressing this the way they should be. Uh, as you talked about earlier, Senator Gillibrand has been fighting to get reform, and the major reform she's talking about doing that I support is what I call professionalizing the military justice, and that is to have prosecutors versus commanders make prosecution decisions. Now, there's been efforts to stop her, and as a result, in 2014, legislation was passed as a method to stop this reform, and it was to uh, give a survivor a choice of being have her case being prosecuted by the civilians or the military, and the commander was supposed to tell her this, and they were supposed to make sure that that choice was given to the civilians if she chose to, to do so. So we asked for that data. Are you doing this? Uh, how many survivors have been provided with this choice? How many of them elected to be provi- have their case prosecuted by the civilians? Did you honor that? Well, we asked uh, all the services, and so far all the services, except for the Air Force, who hasn't responded yet, have said they don't track the data. Mm. You know, to me that's very worrisome. It tells me that, that they are in, they, militaries, and they're getting, convincing Congress they have this under control, and yet... They're taking no efforts to actually follow the laws Congress passed. Meanwhile, uh, veterans like Leslie are trying to get their discharge statuses upgraded. Uh, Leslie, how is that going? How does that, an, was it an other than honorable discharge that you received? How does that impact you in terms of getting services once you were medically retired? Well, I was uh, given a general under honorable due to the side effects of the PTSD that um, I have after the sexual assault. Um, there was some misconduct, and uh, later on, because I had a medical board going on and there was that misconduct as well, I was given a general under honorable, and I believe that decision was made due to the fact that this was so publicized in the media. And so right now I am working with a set of lawyers um, who are observing the new policies that are coming in, that can possibly help my case to upgrade my discharge. Now, uh, the type of discharge that I have, I still have my benefits, but at this time, I don't have my post-9-11 GI Bill 
Um, and it deters me from some programs that they strictly want an honorable discharge. So it, it's a little unsettling sometimes because I served my four years honorably. I s- told myself, hey, I don't want this uh, sexual assault to just determine my career. So I signed up again, and, you know, it was just very unfortunate. And uh, Don, I know Protect Our Defenders, again, is focused on uh, changing the system within in terms of how the military responds to sexual harassment and assault. Uh, but there are other veterans in this country who've had to leave their service uh, because of and they've gotten a discharge other than honorable uh, that can impact them years on. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, so um, the military has uh, in the past, refused to acknowledge the fact that when somebody has gone through a sexual assault or rape, that it creates uh, trauma that, that leads to PTSD, and that leads to uh, them sometimes not being able to function as they did before. And the military has uh, pushed them out the door with uh, less than honorable discharges, with mental health diagnoses that, that impact their ability to get benefits. The DOD's own numbers show that one out of three women who report a sexual assault or rape are out the door within a year of reporting and typically within seven months. So it's it's a career. You know, at Protector Defenders, we uh, amplify very hard to uh, help victims like Leslie who are trying to get their discharges upgraded. And fortunately, we have seen now that the Veterans Administration is realizing uh, that that in the past things haven't been done correctly and that they need to look at this and refocus their attention. Don, we'll have to leave it there. Again, Don Christensen, a retired colonel with the U.S. Air Force, now president of Protect Our Defenders. Thank you also to Leslie, a Connecticut veteran who served in the U.S. Marine Corps. We appreciate you coming in to tell us your story. Thank you so much. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. A special thanks to Katie Talarski. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathan. Thanks for listening.